0: Welcome back to Rotford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. We finished up Chapter 1 on the previous episode, and now we are going to begin on Chapter 2, which is, in, excuse me, which is entitled Making Rent. Sometime after Sharina paid him a visit with her eviction notice, Lamar was back in his apartment on 18th and Wright, playing spades with his two sons and their friends. As always, they sat around a small kitchen table, slapping the playing cards hard on the wood or sending them spinning with a calm flick of the wrist. The neighborhood boys knew they could show up at Lamar's place day or night for a bite to eat, a drag off a of blunt if they were lucky, and a romping game of spades. Quote, You ain't got no more spades, Negro? End quote. Quote, Look, we gonna set they ass. End quote. Lamar was partnered with Buck. At 18, Buck was the oldest of the crew and went by big bro. They sat across from each other, playing Luke, Lamar's 16-year-old son, and Demarcus, one of Luke's closest friends. Eddie, Lamar's younger son at 15, worked the stereo while four other neighborhood boys stood around, waiting their turn to spades. Lamar sat in his wheelchair. His prosthetic legs, each one foot to top shin, stood beside his bed, casting a human-like shadow on the rough wood floor. Quote, police crazy, end quote, Buck offered, inspecting his hand. He was finishing high school and working part-time in his cafeteria, where he had to wear a hairnet to cover his thick cornrows. Buck slept at his parents' house, but lived at Lamar's. If someone asked him why, he would study his his size 12 boots and just say, quote, cuz, end quote. The boys usually walked to the store or football practice together, strutting nine or ten deep down Wright Street. Being stopped by the Milwaukee PD had become routine. This was why, when someone made a run to the weed spot, he usually went alone. Quote, next time, I'm going to be like, what you stopping me for? End quote, Buck went on. Quote, because you have a right to ask them. They got to see, smell, hear something. End quote. Quote, they ain't got to see nothing. End quote, Lamar replied. Quote, yes, they do, pops. They teaching me this at school end quote quote they teaching you wrong then end quote the laughed and put a cigarette lighter to a blunt he had just licked shut he drew in and passed it the game got underway quick at first then slower as players his hands thinned quote when the police come up end quote buck persisted quote even if they pull you over you ain't even got to let your window down you just got to roll it down a little bit end quote quote it ain't that sweet End "Quote Lamar grinned. Quote Nah pops. End quote. Quote Don't be trying to change things, man. End quote. Cut into Marcus, who had just been arrested because of his quote slick mouth. End quote. According to Lamar, quote A hard head makes a soft ass. End quote. The laughter lifted higher when Lamar added, quote Can't call me collect. End quote. He took a drag off the blunt. Quote Baby boy. End quote. His voice was tender. Quote, I'm 51. If it's happened, I've been through it. End quote. Quote, the police ain't protecting us. End quote, Buck said. Quote, I feel you on that, but all polices are not the same. If I was in the neighborhood and it was rough, I'd want the police to clean that shit up too. End quote. Lamar tossed out the king of diamonds and looked left to DeMarcus. Quote, go ahead, son. Get it out your hand. End quote. The ace had already been played, and he figured DeMarcus had the queen. DeMarcus looked back at Lamar, poker, poker face through his thick glasses. Quote, Pops, your neighborhood protects you. If somebody comes through shooting, everybody on the block, everybody who got hauling off shooting, end quote. Quote, man, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I know I can shoot, end quote. Lamar had joined the Navy in 74 after seeing a commercial. He was 17. The Navy was a blur of boring oceans, exotic locations, shore leave parties, pills, and blown checks. Lamar couldn't see why all the floppy-haired college students down in Madison had gone crazy over Vietnam, getting their noggins stumped by police batons and blowing up a university building. Lamar was having a blast. He was dishonorably discharged in 1977. Quote, but a bullet ain't got no eyes, end quote, Lamar continued. Quote, man, look here, we went to court with DeMarcus, end quote. The game stopped while Lamar told the story. Before Demarcus's case was called, Lamar said, they had watched a teenager sentenced to 14 years for accompanying his older brother when he beat a crackhead to death. Quote, he's in the courtroom bawling his eyes out, end quote. Quote, they on some bull because he a little black boy, end quote, Buck said. Quote, well, then that should make you think being black, end quote. As Buck laughed, DeMarcus slapped his card down, the eight of spades. Quote, ah, that's what my mama taught me, end quote, he yelled. Next to all other suits, the spade was the most powerful. DeMarcus slid the book to his pile. Quote, damn, end quote, Lamar said. Then he looked back at Buck. Quote, it ain't worth it, doing stupid stuff. Prison ain't no joke. You got to fight every day in prison for your life, end quote. Quote, I know, but when I get mad to the extent that I want to do something, ain't nothing stopping me, end quote. Quote, you better grow up, kid, end quote. As Buck took a long hit off the blunt, Lamar added, quote, and you need to slow down, smoker, end quote. He drew the last word out using a high-pitched, teeny voice. Buck laughed so hard he lost his hit, but the point got through. Quote, I'm straight, end quote, he demurred the next time the blunt was offered. When his sons were at school, Lamar listened to oldies while he cleaned and drank instant coffee with sugar. He pushed forward in his wheelchair, set the brake, and swept the dirt into a long-handed dustpan. Instead of stacking the boys into a single bedroom, Lamar had given Luke one bedroom and Eddie the other, their twin beds resting on metal frames. Lamar's bed sat in the corner of the living room. On the other side was a moss-green couch, team photographs from past football seasons, white silk flowers, and a small fish tank with guppies. The apartment was spare and tidy, full of light. Its pantry bordered on obsessive-compulsive. The spam was stacked neatly in its place, the cereal boxes lined up at attention, the cans of soup and beans organized by kind and all forward-facing. Lamar had repurposed a close de, Clos de bois wine. Excuse me, let me try that again. Lamar had repurposed a close Dubois wine rack to hold a small stereo, dishes, and the Folgers can where he kept his tobacco and midnight special rolling papers. The place had come a long way. When Lamar first came to look at the apartment, it was a mess, with maggots sprouting from the unwashed dishes in the kitchen. But Lamar needed a home. He and his sons had been sharing a room in the basement of his mother's house. She gave all of them a 9 pm curfew and saw that the and saw the place had promise. Serena had waived Lamar's security deposit. She thought he would be approved for supplemental security income, a monthly stipend for low-income people who are either elderly or have mental or physical disabilities, but that hadn't worked out yet. After school let out for the day, the boys would start showing up at Lamar's sometimes with and sometimes without Luke and Eddie. Most evenings, by nightfall, everyone ha- would have chipped in for a blunt or two and the cards would come out. Lamar's approach with his sons and the boys he treated like sons was open and in avuncular, in a, a, a avuncular, quote, you can't hide nothing from God, end quote, he told them, quote, so don't hide it from your daddy. Do what you do at home. I'd rather for you to do it at home around me than out there on them street corners, end quote. As Lamar smoked and laughed with the boys, he handed down advice about work, sex, drugs, cops, life. When the boys complained about girls, Lamar would try to even the scales. Quote, you've been talking about girls, but it's the men, though, that be messing up on them. End quote. Lamar reviewed the boys' report cards and nagged them about finishing their homework. Quote, they think I'm partying with them. I'm watching them. End quote. Lamar could watch them because he was not always away pulling a long shift. Plenty of people on his block worked. The boys hardly saw those people except when they dashed to their cars, uniforms pressed. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. So let's have a small review. So what stands out to me from the passages that we just read, firstly, is the manner of conversation that is happening between Lamar I believe is his name yeah between Lamar and his sons and the the boys that he calls his sons treats like his sons and at the center of it is police terrorism Uh, at the center of it is mass incarceration racial injustice and so many of these books that we read have don't just address one of these aspects but addresses multiple of these aspects because of how intertwined all three of them are and so To hear these young teenage boys already have this adverse opinion of police, already have had these negative interactions and engagements with police sort of lets you know just how early young black men are become conscious of the fact that police are not there to protect them. They may be there to protect other people. They may be there to protect the status quo, but they're not there to protect them or protect people that live in their neighborhood or protect people from their community. And I think that also what stands out is hmm, the different generational outlooks on police terrorism, the different generational outlooks on mass incarceration racial injustice lamar acknowledges he understands that these things are happening to them because they're black but instead of maybe being adamantly against them or adamantly struggling against these things he's more of the mindset of just staying out the police way making sure you don't end up in the system and and so those are just some of the things that i pulled away from that that first passage we read Lamar had worked several jobs after leaving the Navy. He worked as a janitor at multiple places. He drove a forklift and poured chemicals for Athea Laboratories. After he lost his legs, he applied for SSI, but was twice denied because, Lamar recalled being told, he could still work in his condition. Lamar wouldn't argue with that, but good jobs were scarce. Milwaukee used to be flush with good jobs, but throughout the second half of the 20th century, Bosses in search of cheap labor moved plants overseas or to some belt communities where unions were weaker or didn't exist. Between 1979 and 1983, Milwaukee's manufacturing sector lost more jobs than during the Great Depression, about 56,000 of them. The city where virtually everyone had a job in a post-war year saw its unemployment rate climb into the double digits. Those who found new work in the emerging service sector took a pay cut. As one historian observed, quote, machinists in the old Alice Chalmers plan earned at least $11.60 an hour. Clerks in the shopping center that replaced much of that plan in 1987 earned $5.23, quote. These economic transformations, which were happening in cities across America, devastated Milwaukee's black workers, half of whom held manufacturing jobs. When plants closed, they tended to close in the inner city where black Milwaukeeans lived. The black poverty rate rose to 28% in 1980. By 1990, it had climbed to 42%. There used to be an American Motors plan on riches and capital on the city's predominantly black north side. It has been replaced by a Walmart. Today in Milwaukee, former leather tanneries... Today in Milwaukee, former leather tanneries line the banks of the Minami, Minamine. River Valley, like mausoleums of the city's golden industrial age. The Schlitz and Pabst breweries have been shuttered, and one in two working-age African-American men doesn't have a job. In the 1980s, Milwaukee was the epicenter of deindustrialization. In the 1990s, it would become, quote, the epicenter of the anti-welfare crusade, end quote. As President Clinton was fine-tuning his plan to, quote, end welfare as we know it, end quote, a conservative reformer by the name of Jason Turner was transforming Milwaukee into a policy experiment that captivated lawmakers around the country. Turner's plan was dubbed Wisconsin Works, or W-2, and, quote, works, end quote, was right. If you wanted a welfare check, you would have to work, either in the private sector or in a community job created by the state. To push things along, child care and health care subsidies would be expanded. W-2 meant that people were paid only for the hours they logged on a job, even if that job was to sort little toys into different colors and have the supervisor reshuffle them so they could be sorted again the next day. It meant that non-compliers could have their food stamps slashed. It meant that 22,000 Milwaukee families would be cut from the welfare rolls. Five months after Milwaukee established the first real work program in the history of welfare, Clinton signed welfare reform into federal law. When W 2 fully replaced aid to families with dependent children in 1997, it provided two types of month- monthly stipends $673 for beneficiaries who worked and $628 for those who didn't or couldn't, usually because of a disability. Because Lamar didn't work, he received a lesser amount known as W 2T. After paying $550 in rent, Lamar had $78 for the rest of the month. That amounted to $2.19 a day. When Lamar's welfare benefits started, right after he moved into Sharina's apartment, he had mistakenly received two checks. In its Rights and Responsibilities Guide, the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families informed clients who have been overpaid, quote, you may have to repay benefits you receive by mistake regardless of whether it is your fault or the agency's fault, end quote. Tell that to a single father trying to raise two teenage boys on a welfare check. Lamar cashed both checks and bought Luke and Eddie's shoes, clothes, and school supplies, along with curtains and furniture for their new apartment. Quote, of course I spent it. Got my name on it, end quote, he said when a caseworker contacted him after discovering the error. The caseworker deducted the overpayment from Lamar's next check, causing him to fall a month behind on rent. Lamar thought the basement job he had done for Sharina and Quentin was worth $250. The basement was covered with mildew clothes, trash, and dog shit, reminding him of a reoccurring dream he had where he would crawl into a strange, shadow basement to buy dope. He refused to ask any of the boys for help, thinking the work beneath them. He cleaned the basement alone, Working until the stubs grew too sore. It took him a week. Sharina credited him fifty Sharina credited him $50 for it. He still owed her $260. It would have been impossible to get caught up in time by making extra payments. What Lamar had after the rent was paid went to household necessities soap, toilet paper, and the phone bill. So Lamar sold $150 of food stamps for $75 cash, the going rate right in Milwaukee. The refrigerator and pantry would be empty by the end of the month, but Luke and Eddie could ask their grandma for a plate. The other boys already knew to leave Lamar's food alone. It still wasn't enough. If Lamar wanted to keep his home, he needed another hustle. He spotted one when Patrice moved out. Patrice didn't put up much of a fight after Serena delivered her eviction notice. She had moved upstairs from the lower unit, a two-bedroom, where she and her three small children had been living with their mother, Doreen, and Patrice's younger siblings. When Patrice was served the pink papers, she and her children simply moved back downstairs. When Lamar found out, he figured Sharina would need to repaint the unit. He asked her to let him do it. Sharina agreed, saying she would have Quentin drop off the supplies. Quote, Tell him to bring extra, baby. I'm putting together a crew. End quote. Buck and Demarcus showed up, along with Luke, Eddie, and a half dozen other neighborhood boys who had come to see Lamar's home as their own. They spread out in a spacious two-bedroom apartment, dipped roller and brush into a five-gallon bucket, and started slathering the walls. They worked earnestly and with a quiet seriousness. After a while, some tossed their hoodies and shirts on the floor, painting bare-chested. Lamar paused to take in the scene. Just the previous winter, he had climbed into an abandoned house high on crack. When the high wore off, he found he couldn't climb out. His feet had frozen. Lamar kept partying after returning home from the Navy. In the mid-1980s, crack hit the streets of Milwaukee and Lamar started smoking it. He got hooked. His co-workers at Athia knew it because he wouldn't have cigarette money a couple days after payday. Lamar remembered losing his job and apartment. After that, he took Luke and Eddie to shelters and abandoned houses, tearing up the carpet so they could have a blanket at night. Luke Luke and Eddie's mother was around back then But her addiction eventually consumed her, and she gave up her boys. Lamar ate snow during the days he was trapped in the abandoned house. His feet swelled purple and black with frostbite until they looked like rotten fruit. He was delirious when, on the eighth day, he jumped out of an upper floor window. He would say God threw him out. When he woke up in the hospital, his legs were gone. Except for two brief relapses, he had not smoked crack since. Quote, I'm blessed, end quote. Lamar said, looking at Luke and Eddie. The white paint misting from their rollers freckled their black skin. Quote, my boy's okay. End quote. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. So let's have a small reflection. So what stands out to me in the passage we just read first is the statistical information that was given about the loss of jobs in Milwaukee. The loss of jobs in I think it was just Milwaukee. I don't think it was Wisconsin as a whole. Just give me one second, trying to flip back the pages. Okay. Okay, yeah, found the spot. So it speaks about in the nineteen eighties, the Milwaukee was the epicenter of deindustrialization. And that was something that we had touched on very early on when reading this when and that's just uh, one of the things that I've read so many times, and it's been such a re- reoccurring theme. And it sort of has it hits home because I live in Rockford, because this is a Midwestern city. That when I hear about inner cities that are in the Midwest, one of the first thoughts I have is that they probably were hit by deindustrialization. And then when people, you know, the the concept of deindustrialization to me, in the most simplified way, is talking about these factory jobs, these jobs where people were building cars, these industrial jobs being taken away from being in America and being moved to overseas because they could pay the people overseas less. Uh, and the people who were hit the hardest by that were black people and were inner city people, working class people, poor people. And so that was something we had already talked about. Then they go into some details talking about the 1980s in Milwaukee. They talked about, President Clinton coming into office and how President Clinton had a, you know, completely changed the welfare program. Talks about the Milwaukee mayor changing the program. Uh, was it the Milwaukee mayor? Uh, trying to see here. Okay, they said the man's name is Jason Turner, but I guess they don't really say specifically what, what his position was. But either way, the welfare reform that took place in the 90s, it speaks about how hard that people in Milwaukee were hit by it. And one of the things that's always important for me to point out to people is that it's not simply just the Republicans that have done things that have had adverse effects on people of color and black people, that it is also the Democrats and liberals who have done things that have adverse effects on people of color and black people because these two parties are competing for the same seats sometimes when one of them swings so far to the right you'll see the other one swing a little bit to the right too to try to pick up that ground and that's what has happened generally speaking in america with democrats especially in the 90s you know when people talk about president clinton we talk about here we talk about specifically how he pushed forward this police reform bill that helped to uh, Fast forward mass incarceration, that the three strikes bill, all of these different things that took place in the the, the 90s, the concept of pushing out this rhetoric of super predator, uh, calling young black men, young black people, super predators and all of these different things that played a part in the some of the democratic political agendas in the 90s. And we see how we hear we are reading about the welfare reforms, which is a different aspect of that political agenda that Clinton had. And one of the things that has happened routinely is being cutbacks in welfare, cutbacks in uh, the public health sector, cutbacks in education, and then an increase in police and money for police budgets, an increase in money for mass incarceration budgets, an increase in money for military budgets. And that's because of we, we live in a country that is so heavily funded by mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex, so heavily funded by the war industrial complex. I think that's the the terminology, war industrial complex. And so those are all things that stand out to me as we're reading through that, as we learn about some of the economic past of Milwaukee. And and then this point here, between 1979 and 1983, Milwaukee's manufacturing sector lost more jobs than during the Great Depression about 56,000 56, of them. And so it's always important to me to point out that when you hear about this these loss of jobs that these things don't happen because it's the work that they were doing no longer is needed to be done. A lot of times these things happen because companies can find somewhere else to get the work done in a cheaper way. And those, you know, sort of paint, That paints some of the negative aspects of capitalism. And then the jobs that are or the things that replaced these factories, the jobs that replaced these factories did not pay uh, in the same. Same. Bracket. Okay, let's keep reading. The following month, Sharina was driving through heavy rain. Traffic sounded like a thousand mop buckets being tossed out the back door. She was headed to a meeting of the Milwaukee Real Estate Investors Networking Group, R-I-N-G, at the Best Western Hotel by the airport on the far south side of the city. Fifty people showed up, including investors, mold assessors, lawyers, and other players in real estate, but the majority of the people in the room were landlords. Men mostly, young men in ties, many the sons of landlords but taking notes anyway, foot-tapping middle-aged men in leather jackets and boots, Older men in caps and flannel shirts with knuckles like tree knots. Sharina stood out as a woman and especially as a black woman. Besides her friends Laura, besides her friend Laura, who had moved from Jamaica thirty years ago, Sharina was the only black person in the room. Almost everyone else was white with names like Eric, Mark, or Kathy. A couple of generations ago, a gathering like this would have been virtually unheard of. Many landlords were part-timers, machinists or preachers or police officers who came to own property almost by accident, through inheritance, say, and saw real estate as a side gig. But the last 40 years have witnessed the professionalization of property management. Since 1970, the number of people primarily employed as property managers have more than quadrupled. As more landlords began buying more property and thinking of themselves primarily as landlords, instead of people who happened to own the unit downstairs, professional associations proliferated, and with them, support services, accreditations, training materials, and financial instruments. According to the Library of Congress, only three books offering apartment management advice were published between 1951 and 1975. Between 1976 and 2014, the number rose to 215. Even if most landlords in a given city did not consider themselves, quote, professionals, end quote, housing had become a business. The evening speaker was Ken Shields from the Self Storage Brokers of America. After selling his insurance company, Shields had begun looking for a way to get into real estate. He started out with rooming houses, which meant he started out renting mainly to poor single men. Quote, very nice cash flow, but I no longer have them, end quote. The room chuckled, quote, I made some good money and I mean, I love to get money, but I'm still just as happy not running around and dealing with some of these dregs of society who live in rooming houses, end quote. Sharina, who owned a couple of rooming houses, laughed along with the room. Then Shields found self-storage, quote, it's got the residential incomes of an apartment, excuse me, quote, it's got the residual incomes of an apartment building, but End quote. He lowered his voice, squinted. Quote, you don't have the people. You just got their stuff. This is the sweetest spot in the whole American economy. A receptacle for an enormous cascade of money. End quote. The landlords love Ken Shields, even if he did live in Illinois. When he finished his speech, the room broke into applause. The ring president, which was the name of the networking group, a mustached man with a full pouch for his stomach stood up clapping. When there wasn't a speaker, he often organized round Robins. One such evening, a woman from Lead Excuse me, one such evening, a woman from Lead and Asbestos Information Center, Incorporated, has started off by announcing, quote, there is money to be made on lead, end quote, to a room of landlords who more often lost money trying to abate it. One landlord asked whether he would have to report the presence of asbestos to the city or the tenants if he tested for it. Quote, no, you don't, end quote, the woman had said. The conversation moved on and someone else had asked about garnishing wages. A lawyer informed the room that a landlord was allowed to garnish a tenant's bank account and up to 20% of his or her income, but the last $1,000 was exempt and welfare recipients were off limits. Quote, how about intercepting their tax refund? End quote, Sharina had asked. The lawyer looked a bit stunned. Quote, no, only the government can do that. End quote. Sharina already knew that. She had looked into it before. Her question wasn't a question. It was a message to Eric, Mark, Kathy, and everyone else in the room that she would do almost anything to get the rent. Many white landlords knew money could be made in their inner city where poverty was cheap. But the thought of collecting payments on the north side let alone passing out eviction notices, made them nervous. Sharina wanted them to know that she could help. For the right price, she would manage their property or consult with them about where to buy in the ghetto. She would be their broker to black Milwaukee. After that meeting, white landlords had surrounded Sharina, who had worn a denim jacket with Million Dollar Baby, bedazzled in rhinestones on the back. She poked fun as she collected business cards. Quote, don't be afraid of the north side. End quote. As people started to leave, Sharina and Laura found a quiet spot in the hallway. Quote, I got drama. End quote. Sharina began. Quote, Drama for your mama. Me and Lamar Richards are going at it again. The man with no legs. He shorted me on my rent this month. Quote. quote. How much? Quote. Laura's voice, with soft traces of the island accent, belonged to a librarian. She was older than Sharina, and that night was elegantly dressed in dark slacks, gold earrings, and a layered red blouse. She folded her fur lined coat on her lap. Quote, thirty dollars, end quote, Sharina shrugged. Quote, but that's not it. It's the principal. He already owes me two sixty for that bad job for the painting, end quote. When Lamar and the boys had finished painting, he called Sharina and she came over. She noticed that the boys had not filled in the holes, had dripped white paint on the brown trim, had ignored the pantry. Lamar said Quentin had not dropped off whole filler or brown paint. Quote, you're supposed to go and ask for it then, end quote. Sharina snapped back. She refused to credit Lamar's cent toward his debt. Quote, and then, end quote, Sharina continued, quote, he did his bathroom floor over without my knowledge and deducted $30 out of the rent, end quote. When painting, Lamar had found a box of towel in Patrice's old place and had used it to retile his bathroom floor, securing each piece with leftover paint. Quote, I told him, do not, do not ever deduct any more rent from me ever again. Plus, how can you deduct when you owe me? End quote. Laura recrossed her legs. Quote, he's a player. That's all he is. Time for him to go. They just try to take, 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 take. End quote. Quote. The thing is, end quote, Serena circled back to Lamar's painting job, quote, I would have never paid anybody $260 to do that, end quote. Quote, I can get painting done in five rooms, 30 bucks a room, $150, end quote. Quote, no, no, no. Our people do it for $20 a room, 25 at the most, end quote. Quote, exactly, end quote. Quote, as far as I'm concerned, He still owes the 260. Excuse me. Now it's 290. End quote. The old friends laughed. It was just what Sharina needed. And then that brings us to the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, which is entitled Hot Water. So, hmm, what stands out to me the most is the way that make sure I get her name right. OK, so what stands out to me the most is the way that Sharina got the name. I had to look the look her name up, make sure I got that correct. The way that she behaved or the. The actions she displayed at this meeting with this crowd of majority of white people and how she wanted to make sure she let them know that she would do anything to secure the rent and how she wanted to, you know, hopefully be able to do some type of business with them as being there. Uh, House house manager, is that the term that they use? And uh, I think what happens a lot of times for Black people, and this sort of connects back to Sister Citizen, and in some aspects, the souls of Black folk. Really, Sister Citizen more directly is the first thing I can think of, is trying to adjust yourself to be acceptable or be accepted by mainstream white society or by uh the white power structure and of course she's in this room she's one of she's probably one of the fewer women that's in the room she's also was we seen that she was one of only two black people in the room and so i'm sure she doesn't want to come off as being somebody who doesn't work as hard because she's black or uh is not as Stern about collecting the money, or you know, of course, there are certain appearances that it seems she's trying to keep up in this room full of white people, and far too often that is something that happens to the black people who can rise to a a, a certain plateau in this country, or who can break certain glass ceilings. Is that once they break those glass ceilings, uh they their mentality is no longer about the masses of black people who. Can't who don't have the opportunity to break those glass ceilings or the avenues to break those glass ceilings, and their mindset that becomes more like the uh, the 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 white people who have routinely and regularly been able to break those glass ceilings, and and so like I guess to try to use an an analogy is that the people who were here were not the people at this meeting at meeting in this room were not there to talk about how being landlords could be uh, helpful for the people who are renting homes and how they could help the neighborhood that these homes are in and the communities of the people who live in these homes. The only thing that they're talking about is how to gain more capital, how to make more money. The person that they had leading this whole group essentially was saying that, you know, he was happy to not have to deal with those kind of people anymore and then not have to deal with basically people in general anymore. And so these People who are who are in this meeting, at least landlords, are not people who are doing this to help people. It's people who are doing this to profit, and and of course, when you are from uh, the white community, the white power structure, uh, it's a lot a lot simpler to view thing everything in a, as a transaction or everything as a money value system, and it's about how much money it can bring you. However, one of the main differences, and Du Bois did talk about this when he read The Souls of Black Folk, one of the main differences about what about Black people was our value system and the fact that money was not the end-all, be-all for Black people in their value system. That was something that began to happen more once integration, token integrationism, began to take place because it was a time where it didn't matter how much money you had if you were Black. Being Black still limited what it was that you could do. And, and so... To me, it was disheartening to hear about how Sharina operated in this room full of white people. And it is very disheartening a lot of times to hear about how black people from our community interact when they get into a room full of white people or interact when they get in a room full of uh, people who business people that they want to impress or a room full of, full of capitalists. Uh, they begin to stop thinking about we and start think, and stop thinking about the collective of black people and start only thinking about me and the individual Uh, the individualistic aspect of, of things. Okay. And we are well over our 30 minute mark. So we're going to wrap this episode up before we hit 40 minutes, please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And remember to be on the lookout for next week's episode. I mean, tomorrow's episode of Rock for Reading Daily, where we will begin reading chapter three of Evicted by Matthew Desmond.